Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Daniel Levin Becker. He is the senior editor at McSweeney's and is the author of Many Subtle Channels and What's Good. Today, we will be talking about Dear McSweeney's Two Decades of Letters to the Editor from Writers, Readers, and the Occasional Bewildered Customer, which Daniel edited of course, for the fine folks at McSweeney's. Daniel, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jason. Yeah, it's an honor. It's an honor to have you here, Daniel. And my first question for you is, tell me what your work as a senior editor at McSweeney's entails. What do you do? So it's fluctuated a lot over the years. Um, I've been a senior editor in name for probably three or four years now, and it's run the gamut from doing books, like acquiring and editing books. Um, the last one that I did in depth was a book by Jocelyn Derbolina called Of Color, an essay collection that came out uh, last June, I want to say. What is time, you know? Yeah. Um, Flat circle. And sometimes, you know, projects like this one, um, anthology project going back into the archives and curating a selection. And then sometimes it's also involved doing kind of white label editorial projects for clients in the not necessarily literary space. Like for instance, at one point a few years ago, McSweeney's made a wellness magazine for the mattress retailer Casper, um, which was a lot of fun. It was a great project. We made a magazine called Wooly, which was going to be quarterly. And uh, for internal reasons, they ended up withdrawing the the deal after the the first issue. But we have one issue of this great magazine about wellness. Um, so just sort of supervising uh, this and that, acquiring editing, and just all around being kind of an editorial utility fielder. Nice. Thank you so much, uh, Daniel. So um, I used to manage a bookstore in San Francisco and did a lot of work with McSweeney's out there. We did some journal drives for 826 Valencia, um, et cetera. I'm very familiar with your work, but for the small percentage of our listeners who are unaware, can you tell us who McSweeney's is and then tell us why I collect and publish a volume of letters to McSweeney's? Yeah. So McSweeney's is a small, but mighty, publishing house based in San Francisco, started by Dave Eggers, uh, the author of a heartbreaking work of Staggering Genius and The Circle and The Every, which has just come out, and more, more books that can be reasonably kept track of by the, uh, the consumer with other things to do. Um, and it, I think McSweeney's, Timothy McSweeney's Quarterly Concern, which is the qu roughly quarterly magazine from which these letters are pulled, has been coming out since 1998. And that was around the, the beginning of McSweeney's as a, as a publishing empire. This was before I was involved. So my, my history is academic rather than lived. Um, but that um, said, said empire has published a lot of books, a lot of really interesting, sometimes challenging, sometimes kind of absurdly delightful things. Um, it's also had some magazines, including the Quarterly, which I just mentioned, uh, The Believer, started at McSweeney's, it's no longer published. It's now published by the University of Nevada at Las Vegas and the Black Mountain Institute. Um, there was a video magazine called Wolfen. Now there's a magazine called Illustoria, which is a really sumptuous kind of design and activity magazine for kids. So there's always a lot of stuff going on. McSweeney's is also um, 
kind of incubated a bunch of nonprofits, including the Valentino Achek Deng Foundation, um, which Dave made in partnership with the, the narrator of his book, What is the What? Uh, Voice of Witness, which is an oral history project for uh, refugees and asylum seekers. Uh, what else? Um, A26 National, of course, which is a big chain of tour, uh, tutoring and writing centers for high school age and younger children, um, in uh, all, all of which are located in retail storefronts with fantastical um, sort of uh, uh, allures, shall we say. So in San Francisco, for instance, it's a pirate store. I think in Seattle, it's a time travel store. In Chicago, it's a spy store, etc. So anyway, McSweeney's has its fingers in a lot of pies, um, mm-hmm. but its main bread and butter are uh, these magazines, in particular, The Quarterly Concern and uh, the books. And Sorry, I would be remiss not to mention the humor website, which is called McSweeney's Internet Tendency, which is maybe the most well-known, the thing that you're most likely to see a link to floating around on Twitter, um, which is consistently awesome daily humor uh, run by a guy named Chris Monks in, uh, in Massachusetts, who's, who's pretty incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, and, and the second part of your question, yeah. why uh, I, I'll get there eventually, you just got to be patient with me. Um, why compile a book of letters to the editor from this magazine? Um, I think in part because they are, they both are and aren't letters to the editor. You know, ordinarily, I talk about this in the editor's note that I wrote, ordinarily you would expect a letter to the editor to comment on something that's appeared in the magazine previously, or to say, you know, you got this wrong, or to say, you know, you had an editorial about this, but I'm actually, I see it another way. This is this proposed legislation that you're um, championing is in fact bad for the following reasons. All the things that um, we think of when we think of an engaged readership are absolutely not what these letters are. These letters are much more of an experimental place for people, some of whom are writers, some of whom are um, secular civilians, shall we say, and some of them uh, are writings, sometimes they're travelogues, sometimes they're musings, sometimes they're really just tiny um, tiny insights that have been spun out into these things that s- sort of look like essays, but aren't quite essays. It's a really rich exploration of this form that um, is not, I, I, I don't want to say it's maligned, but uh, it's not something we tend to think about that much these days, especially in the, the era of the internet comments section. But the letter, letter to the editor is a really fascinating space for people to express themselves. And I think this why compile an anthology like this is in part to to show gesturally that it's still a space where really interesting things can be done. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. And um, I do just want to briefly bring back up, you mentioned Valentino Dang and what is the what? And we talked about that uh, in a previous episode a few weeks ago uh, with John Grisham, who had written a book about a Sudanese basketball player. Um, mm-hmm. That book is fantastic. Valentino came and um, went to a diner with a bunch of us here in Durham, North Carolina, when he was touring for that book. Um, It's a great book. Listeners, if you haven't read it, pick it up. So um, let's get to these letters, Daniel. First, tell me, uh, is it wrong of me to flip to the end of a letter and see who wrote it before I read it? I don't think so. I'm going to apologize now, right now for the guy who on Fridays uh, often just shows up on my street playing the trumpet. Um, (laughs) Just 
just let it be a, an accompaniment to my mellifluous words. I don't think it's wrong. I mean, I, um, I sort of think of it as going to an art museum and looking at a painting and looking at the placard next to it and seeing who painted it, which is something that I'm, I, I think of myself as being guilty of it, but I don't know that it's anything to be reproached or feel guilty about. It's just sort of, I think, a very natural way to prime yourself to know what to make of a letter, to know what to make of a piece of art to know sort of all, all the data that comes with knowing who did it and when and what it's called. Um, so I don't think you're wrong. Although um, I think there's also something, and it's not an innovation. I think it's, it's not something that we started in McSweeney's. It's something that is pretty common to letters to the editor. I think there is still something special about the fact that you don't have a byline in front. It's not at the top that you see, you know, here's the title of the text and here's who it's by. It's that if you're reading in the, sort of naive way that most people don't actually read. But in theory, if you're just reading straight through from the beginning to the end, that only at the end do you find out who you've been listening to. I think there's something special about at least uh, making available the possibility of doing that as a reader. Yeah, thank you very much. And um, we'll revisit this idea a little later. But I bring that up, listeners, because there are several uh, writers that you will recognize who have written letters to McSweeney's in this collection. Um, I would like to ask you to respond to a quote from the second letter by Sarah Manguso. And that quote is, the amount of recollected emotion that disappears from human memory when someone dies and the degree to which we rely on a few people to record something of what emotions were to them is almost too much to bear, end quote. Daniel, what does this quote mean to you? And is this why people write? Or is it why people read? Uh, quite possibly, yeah. I mean, I've been thinking about that sort of thing a lot lately, about art and artistic endeavor as sort of this, uh, you know, shoring up ruins against encroaching oblivion, uh, holding on to what you can, deciding what you want to save and making making an effort to preserve it for the sort of anonymous idea of posterity. Um, that's a really appealing idea to me. Um, and I think, yeah, I think writing is great for that. Writing is one of the more user-friendly media that we can use, but all sorts of artistic endeavor and expression are, I think, uh, on some level, consciously or not, and with all of the exceptions that we might need to make disclaimers for, are, I think, people um, working through something that's overwhelmed them or something that's suffused them with emotion and trying to leave a trace of it that uh, will be available to them in the future and also to, to other people. Uh, that's a really, it's a really beautiful melancholy letter that Sarah Manguso wrote about vacuuming up moths in Wyoming. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Daniel. Um, this is a good time to mention the Crooks Corner Book Prize. Have you heard about the Crooks Corner Book Prize, what Pulitzer Prize winner Charles Fraser calls the coolest book prize in the country? Awarded annually for the best debut novel set in the American South, the $5,000 prize is intended to encourage emerging writers, whether published by established publishing houses, small independent publishers, or self-published authors. This year's winner will be chosen by best-selling novelist and poet Ron Rash and will be announced in January 2022. For more information, visit www.crookscornerbookprize.com. Daniel, back to Dear McSweeney's. Uh, I, can, I, can I add one thing in response yeah. to your previous question? Please do. There's a proverb um, 
that I can't remember who it's by. It's by an African African writer about how when when a man dies, it's a library that burns, uh, which I think is is sort of a nice um, subtextual B side to to what ends Sarah's letter about you know the what disappears from human memory when someone dies is <clears throat> excuse me is a really uh, sort of a fact of life that mm. I think a lot of art is designed to to struggle against valiantly. Absolutely. Um, and I'm a fan of B-sides. Thank you so much for, mm-hmm. for that quote. Um, I'd next like to ask you about the letter from Neil Hobson, who begins his letter with the words, I'm a little hungover, so I'll make this short. Uh, do, you, do you recall this letter? And if so, can you tell us what is going on with this hissing armadillo named Andrew Jackson? <laughs> so yeah, it's Brandon, Brandon Hobson, who actually read this letter or some of it, a sort of abridged version of it at our event last night at the Strand. Uh, one of my favorites, although most of them are among my favorites. Um, and it is recounting a harrowing encounter, as you as you previewed with an armadillo. Uh, he's just he's celebrating the paperback release of his latest novel by having a smoke and listening to an Ornette Coleman album. And he's in his garage, and he encounters an armadillo. He's, he lives in New Mexico. He's um, encountered armadillos before, but some confluence of this particular one and the weed that he's just smoked uh, make it clear to him. Uh, I'll actually just read from it. He says, here's where things get really strange. The armadillo opened its mouth and hissed these words. I'm Andrew Jackson, seventh president of the United States. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, it's, it's much lighter than a Kafkaesque uh allegory or anything like that it's just sort of this this vignette of a guy probably hallucinating an encounter with a um, reincarnated andrew jackson in the form of an armadillo and he texts his wife and says there's an armadillo in the garage and she says call animal control and he says uh but it's andrew jackson and she says well if it's andrew jackson then you have my permission to beat him to death because uh he and his he he and his wife are in the cherokee nation and um, obviously there's a there's a carries a lot of the the baggage the hangover if you will of um what let's see what he calls the brutal and egregious shit that andrew jackson did during his term to his ancestors and the thousands of people he forced from their land etc so it's um maybe i'm wandering a little bit away from the question you asked but it's a really um it's one of the things that these letters do really well like it's it's a little too grounded to be a short story. It's a little too strange to be an essay. And it's, uh, it's just this anecdote in which uh, it's both funny and kind of delightful to just think about this, this guy who's just gotten stoned and trying to have a nice day. And suddenly he's dealing with an armadillo that is uh, Andrew Jackson. And there's a, a, a depth to it, like a real, um, there's, there's something um, really powerful happening um, if you, if you listen closely enough. Yeah. To talk just a little bit more about the letter from, uh, Brandon Hobson, have you ever had to deal with a hissing creature in your home? Uh, only cats. Only cats. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. We had raccoons in, in our attic recently. I had to like set a drum set up up there and like, so <laughs> I mean, my, my condolences for your for your raccoon infestation, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, a, what a cool way to deal with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they cleared out for sure. Well, <laughs> thank you, Daniel. Uh, listeners, we're going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor, and I will be right back with Daniel Levenbecker. 
The Bookin Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Daniel Levin Becker, editor of Dear McSweeney's Two Decades of Letters to the Editor from Writers, Readers, and the Occasional Bewildered Consumer, which is, of course, published by our friends at McSweeney's. Daniel, I'm going to continue to pull from the letters in this collection, as I think this is the best way to give our listeners an idea of the ground you're covering here. Uh, Do you have a favorite letter in this collection? I have too many favorite letters. Yeah, I understand. Um, I want to talk about the letter from Anthony Mara, which references Michael Crichton. Um, Mm -hmm. Is there a pop literature author like Michael Crichton that you enjoy, whose deep cuts you can reference at the drop of the hat? And as an addendum, who, in your opinion, is the present day Michael Crichton? Oh, man, what a great question. Um, I'm going to say... As weird as it sounds, like the the Michael Crichton of my youth, which is to say the the author whose deep cuts I'm familiar with and like found really compulsively readable as a as a young young reader is L. Frank Baum, hmm. uh, who wrote The Wizard of Oz and like thirteen or fourteen sequels, uh, all of which I read, none of which I can tell you anything about except one sentence in maybe like you know book number nine in which uh, the Scarecrow. He's talking about how he's full of straw and he says, hear me crunkle. That's just mm-hmm. those three words have, have remained uh, from those idyllic childhood readings. Mm-hmm. Who would the contemporary Michael Crichton be? What a great question. Um, I feel like France, so I live in, I live in France and um, the French in a way have more of a culture of writers who stay at this um, crossroads between literary success and um what the people who are invested in literature with a capital l would mm. roll their eyes at you know like i think as as anthony says in his letter um he says something great about how like uh Crichton's characters are as are as shallow as the embossing on his book covers or something like that and that's true like i've read some michael Crichton books and he's he's not what you would call a masterful pro stylist but he's a great storyteller mm. um uh, I guess I mean J.K. Rowling. I think is a better prose stylist than uh, than Michael Crichton, but there's also a quality of um, being, you know, sort of privileging the the narrative and hooking you in on that level, rather than what I'm more used to is um, in terms of sort of following the rhythm of the sentence, letting the letting the drum set that is the sentence uh, hypnotize the the raccoons up in the attic of my mind. Um, I'm just hedging. I don't. I, I can't think of, of who the modern day Michael Crichton is. What do you think? Um, 
You know, it's, I don't think that there's anyone that's really filling that um, hole where you kind of marry like hyper genre fiction with science. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, the genre fiction aspect, maybe like, you know, Dan Brown, even though I'd put Michael Crichton Mm -hmm. a little above Dan Brown and, um, and, you know, to go in the extreme opposite direction, uh, Richard Powers, who's doing these fantastic, um, works of prose mixed with science, but, um, you know, perhaps a little more like hyper-literary, but he's uh, also a bestseller, you know, with um, mm-hmm. the overstory having broken everyone's expectations. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great call. I guess you can call Michael Crichton, like the historical love child of, of Dan Brown and Richard Powers. Richard Powers being like such a great writer that it's sometimes exhausting and Dan mm-hmm. Brown being such a bad writer that it's, that it's comical. There's a yeah. there's a linguistics blog that I like a lot called Language Log, which um, one of the commentators on it is just like uh, Dan Brown being a terrible writer is one of his preferred windmills to tilt at. And at one point he um, he's writing about the Da Vinci Code and he says um, to call this novel formulaic would be an insult to the beauty and diversity of formulae. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, and, and speaking of France, I think the last time I was in France, it was when all of these people were running around doing Da Vinci Code tours. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, which was a, a moment in history, maybe some of us would rather forget. Um, all right, well, let's move on to a letter by uh, Sloan Shang. I hope I'm not butchering that pronunciation. Um, where a scenario plays out where someone is shopping for the perfect gas range, and this person finds one that is almost exactly what they want, except for it has a button that says chicken nuggets. And this person gets so upset, so enraged by this button that they yell, this is what's wrong with America. Um, And my question for you is, what is the this that is wrong with America? And is this rage something that you, Daniel, can identify with? Yeah, good question again. Um, I think that this is... um, I guess uh, a sense of pandering, sense of, you know, like, I think if you buy a European appliance, there's sort of unspoken covenant where it's like, yeah, you can make chicken nuggets in this oven if you want, but we're not going to talk about it. That's going to be between you and the chicken nuggets, Mm -hmm. you and the, you know, like 60% chicken, 40% 40 sawdust that is in the, is in the packaging. and something about the American way of marketing uh, consumer items, appliances, or, or other things. It says, you know, like, don't worry, go ahead and make your chicken nuggets. Go ahead and slather your American cheese on on this, uh, you know, on the sandwich you're making, on the quesadilla you're making, the garbage dia, as, as Sloan puts it, which are quesadillas made with bits and pieces of leftover food. Um, that's a really good question because I feel like there is there's a, a logical jump or two contained in seeing a button that says chicken nuggets and crying to the heavens, this is what's wrong with America. Because it's not it's not just the words being on the button, which I think is what I mean when I'm saying uh, pandering. And it's not just the expectation that anyone who buys an oven couldn't possibly not want to make chicken nuggets with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's some, yeah, I guess there's some sort of like... Um, just overwhelming demystification of consumer products that yeah. um, that can be exhausting, I guess. 
Uh, yeah. Do I feel it? I do. I mean, it's easier to uh, look at from at arm's length because I don't live in the States right now. And mm -hmm. that makes me a little more nostalgic. Like sometimes, sometimes we'll get uh, care packages from my in-laws who send us, you know, all of the, <clears throat> all of the things, all of the like queso and peanut butter that are just too lowbrow to be available in France for, you know, less than 20 euros a jar. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really, you know, the absence has made the hard fonder in terms of those things that I might otherwise roll my eyes at. Um, but I think, I think I know what he's talking about without totally being able to articulate, uh, you know, what the answer to your question is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really, can, can I ask you if you have a, a hypothesis? Well, I mean, I, I can understand the frustration and like, man, this, you know, I'm looking for the perfect, you know, appliance for, for this space in my new home. And this thing is exactly what I want. Why? Oh, why does it have to have a special feature specifically for chicken nuggets? Um, you know, I can see that being, being a, a, a very American thing, I guess. Like, yeah, you know, you're going to, you're going to need those nugs on the regular basis that you're going to have to push <laughs> yeah, that button the all the time. Um, yeah. You know, that also makes me think that like part of it is also, um, you know, France is a very developed country with a massive consumer market, but still not the same thing as coming back to the U S and going to a supermarket and just seeing baffling variety of products like mm. so like so many brands and so many kinds of toothpaste mm. how could anybody possibly not only need all of these things like it's great for you know if you have very specialized uh dental needs mm. that's great that's a boon for you but um it's really the, like the, the choice can be overwhelming and the burden of having to figure out which of these 60 different kinds of toothpaste is the right one for you i think is probably a uniquely american predicament so i think maybe that's in play also like whereas in uh, you know if you go to an appliance store in france there may be like 10 different ovens that you can mm -hmm. buy um and just the fact that the the range of choices reduced means that you're not as invested as you might be in the in the possibility of finding something that is absolutely perfect and meets your every need you're more you're more prepared to just meet the meet the oven where it's at rather than hoping that you can find one that's perfectly customized to your needs. Yeah. Yeah. And do you really need 20 uh, different toothpastes with different varieties and percentages of like scope in them? I don't think I mean, I do personally. Yeah. Right. But, uh, yeah. Well, hey, sorry if that offended. It's, it's for my hissing cats. Right, there you go. Um, Daniel, there are instances when a writer can do so much with very little. Uh, a great example of this, of course, is when Nabokov is describing a death in Lolita and just writes picnic, <laughs> comma, lightning, um, in a letter. Parenthetical in, in Western culture. Yeah, in a letter by Colin Winnett, uh, there is a paragraph that starts, my wife and I have been married for just over a year. The cat was our inheritance from an unrelated tragedy. Um can you talk to us about the economy of writing uh, that is going on in here, this, this type of thing, when it is done very well, and how that pervades this collection of letters, which, as you mentioned earlier, um, is in many ways um, right on the periphery of being a collection of short stories in letter format? 
Yeah, well, so without uh, wanting to to reveal too much uh, intimate detail, I, Colin is a dear friend, and I know that this cat who I love, his name is Alabama, is a wonderful and troubled cat whose initial owner actually died very suddenly, mm-hmm. um, unexpectedly and, and pretty tragically. Mm-hmm. And uh, Colin's wife was her roommate. Mm-hmm. And when Colin moved in with... Uh, Andy, who's now his wife, who also used to be a McSweeney staffer. Um, that's that's the tragedy to which he's he's living. He, you know, they as a couple did not get this cat. This cat um, came into their lives through this sort of accident of of fate and this uh, tragedy, as he says. But there, the way I, I really love the way he evokes it um, by saying, sort of letting you think that if only grammatically, that he's suggesting that marriage is one tragedy and this cat coming into their lives is a separate one, which is not what he's doing. And I think, you know, so this week we've been doing some launch events for this book and it's been really wonderful to to hear the authors read their pieces out loud. Um, Colin hasn't participated yet, but um, just to, to your point about this, the use of economy and the way that so much can be packed into these letters uh, without needing to do it explicitly. And in fact, like making it more evocative without, uh, by not saying outright some of the things that would otherwise be said in a longer piece or by a less talented writer. Um, but it's been so great to hear everybody read their piece out loud because, you know, I've, I've read all of these pieces a bunch of times. It's not like I'm never going to read the book again. It's, it's a book that I, I'm really looking forward to having around the house and pulling off the shelf every few months and reading a letter that something has reminded me of. But at the like at this moment in time, I've read all of these pieces so often that um, th- just in the editing process uh, that they're they're sort of flattened into this uniform. Like this one tells a story about the cat who meows and they can't figure out why. This one tells the story about stopping for a gas range and it says chicken nuggets on it and that's terrible. And this, uh, something gets lost about the, the texture and the, the individual idiosyncrasies of each piece. And hearing them read by the author is just such a wonderful way of like getting that, uh, that three-dimensionality back and hearing the things that they say and the things that they choose not to say. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. Thank you so much. Um, and, and I was wondering, you know, how many times you had read these letters because you seem to have perfect recall of all of them, which is very impressive. Um, well, Daniel, finally, um, I asked you about your favorite letter and I'm now going to talk about mine. I told you I was going to circle back around to this idea. At some point, I did stop flipping to the end of the letter to see who mm. wrote it um, and just enjoyed everything linearly. Uh, but I knew when I read the opening... For a time in my life, I worked in a chain bookstore that I was about to read a letter by our friend Hanif Abdurraqib. Uh, this story about the connection that is formed between two people who communicate but never see one another um, is amazing. Uh, can you talk about this story, how the type of connection described in this story crosses over from telephone conversation, as Hanif is describing, to letter writing and further? Uh, does everything Hanif touches turn to gold? (laughs) 
I think so. I think I think it does. I'm just um, in the middle of his new book, A Little Devil in America, and it's really superb. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So so this letter is about a, a time in his life when he worked in the music section of a chain bookstore, which uh, he says. Um, the chain no longer exists, but at the time it was the primary competition for the other really big chain bookstore that still that does still exist. So I think most American readers will will know what he's talking about. Um, and it's a chain bookstore that I have memories of spending a lot of time in the music section of from the suburban period of my childhood. Um, so I can visualize really well sort of what it must have been like these sort of lonely evenings in an understaff or sorry an under. Uh, a bookstore without very many customers, just a slow evening in um, in this corporate environment. And there's this guy named Steve who calls him at one point. Uh, the first time he calls, he's asking about a Dream Theater CD and asks if uh, if Hanif can order it and have it shipped to him. And this, they continue their conversation. They start exchanging references and just talking about deep cuts and old albums and you know prog rock and then moves on to talking about Marvin Gaye and the Kinks and um, Paul McCartney. And they just start this really recurring freewheeling conversation about music. He suspects that Steve is at least a few decades older than him. He doesn't really know anything about um, who he is. He knows he lives nearby, but doesn't know why Steve never ventures into the into the store and why he prefers to have things ordered to him. And it's this very beguiling um, relationship that he talks about through the frame of, um, you know, the pleasure of sharing enthusiasm for art, the pleasure of sort of, you know, have you heard this? Have you heard of this? And all the ways that can bring us closer together to people, even strangers, and also contrasts with, I think this kind of critical impulse that he says he's noticed um, in particular on his book tour, like this is around the time I think that he was doing events in support of his book about a tribe called Quest and people in the audience who ask questions and there's this sort of competitive erudition saying, you know, have you heard of this? No, gotcha. Like I, um, I'm going to distinguish myself by the, the depth and erudition of my references. And he's kind of comparing and contrasting these two models of criticism, one that's fundamentally generous and one that is um, competitive and uh, bad faith, I guess, as, as I think Hanif puts it at one point. Um, yeah, he says, like all things that can be considered microaggressions, this act is entirely transparent to those subjected to it and not as clever as the people engaging in the behavior think it is. Um, I don't really mind this and have gotten very accustomed to being able to pick out the many genuine good faith inquiries among the few bad faith ones. Um, so as, as he does, I think, pretty much everything he touches, um, he's also talking about criticism. He's also mm-hmm. talking about this model for um, engaging with something publicly, which is something I think a lot about uh, you know, in my own work as a critic, um, and how to do it right and how to... I guess internalize the uh, the availability of somebody that you might be talking to who is not looking to distinguish themselves by casting aspersions on your level of knowledge, who are not trying to build themselves up by pulling somebody else down, who are really just there to learn and share and kind of exchange the pleasures 
of um, you know what it's what it's like to be a good listener, to be a good reader, to be a good um, visitor to an art museum, whether or not you look at the the name on the plaque before you look at the painting. Mm-hmm. And so, as you as you rightly suggested, I think that's a that's a really wonderful model for what's going on in this book, because. Um, you know, I talked before about how these aren't letters to the editor in the conventional sense, which are often, you know, in my experience, letters to the editor often are the kind of bad faith um, sort of sharing initiative that Hanif describes. It's, you know, your author talks about this, but neglects to mention the following three academic papers, or have you not considered this, or I think that was a terrible article. You know, some are, some are full of praise and said this really resonated with me, but there's, you would just just as soon expect to find somebody saying, somebody kind of throwing, throwing elbows and saying, you know, this, this was good, but I know better. Um, and one of the thing, one of the many things that's really special about this book and just the idea of writing a letter to the editor of McSweeney's is that you're just, there's, there's no, uh, there's nothing compelling you to write the book, uh, sorry, to write the letter, um, that has any element of dispute. You know, there's there's some letters that talk about, um, you know, American nationalism. Sarah Vell has a letter about American nationalism and that's critical of that. There's a letter about um, the uh, Peña Nieto, the, the president of Mexico and how he's sort of a, a dubious, dangerous character. But for the most part, it's these people who are really, um, in good faith, sharing something that they're fascinated by or passionate about or have just discovered and just can't not share it with as many people as possible. And it's like writing a letter to a friend, except in this case, the friend is a magazine that's going to publish your letter to this huge population, this huge unknown, unnumbered population of people who I think the assumption is are also the same kind of consumer, the same kind of great listener, great reader, great visitor to an art museum who wants to um, who wants to hear about your experience, your fascination, without uh, without any embedded sense of competition. It's a really rambling answer, but yeah, no, it was a fantastic answer, and thank you, Daniel. I, I will have to say about Hanif, who of course is talking about his time working at Borders and uh, Columbus. Um, it's okay to say that because I don't Borders isn't around anymore, so we're not. Fair enough. I, I held my tongue, but I think you're right. Yeah, um, uh, I miss Borders. Um, but you know, Hanif, it's amazing to see how how he's risen. Um, and both not amazing because you know it was inevitable. I think, but um. I once saw him do a, a talk for, you know, a couple few thousand booksellers and um, it was right before the Tribe Called Quest book came out. And I think a small percentage of folks knew who he was from, um, you can't, they can't kill us until they kill us, but um, not a lot of people did. And he stepped up to the microphone to talk about his Tribe Called Quest book and say, you know, I left my wallet in El Segundo. And then like from that moment on, he had everyone eating out of the palm of his hand. Mm-hmm. Um very impressive, very cool guy. I was happy to see him in this connection. Well, Daniel, thank you for putting this collection together. We already have several booksellers here clamoring to read it. Uh, I can't wait for other people to be exposed to it as well. Listeners, I've been speaking with Daniel Levin Becker, senior editor at McSweeney's and editor of Dear McSweeney's, two decades of letters to the editor from writers 
readers, and the occasional bewildered consumer, which is published, of course, by our friends at McSweeney's. Daniel, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Jason. It's been a pleasure. Once again, I've been speaking with Daniel Levin Becker, senior editor at McSweeney's. Copies of Dear McSweeney's, two decades of letters to the editor from writers, readers, and the occasional bewildered consumer can be purchased at www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.